Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Rioja is one of those magical wine regions where the more you scratch, the more interesting things you unearth. Its history and culture is multifaceted and layered. And despite rigid DOC laws, there are many ways of producing wine in Rioja that yield a wide spectrum of varieties and styles. As in many European wine areas, the first wine in Rioja was probably made by Phoenicians, and definitely by Romans, who established wine as a major product in the area. By the 1200s, Rioja wines were being exported, and in the mid-1500s, quality laws were put into place that made it illegal to blend outside wines into Rioja wines. Also, Rioja wines had to be shipped in sealed bota bags, stamped with an indicator of origin. Around this time, Rioja got a lot of foot traffic in the form of pilgrims who were on El Camino de Santiago in Galicia the pilgrims would pass through Rioja and bring home with them a respect for the wines of the region. Rioja wine in a form that resembles something we'd recognize today dates to the late 1700s when Manuel Quintano began to age wine in large wooden barrels. Marquez de Marietta and Marquez de Riscal were using oak in the mid-19th century, and the former was producing on a large level and exporting to the colonies. Today, oak aging is written right into the DOC regulations, and it's pretty much the status quo that your best grapes will go into your reserva or ground reserva, which by regulation must receive the most amount of oak aging. But back to the 1800s. Rioja became a source of wine in France when French vineyards suffered a series of blights in the 1800s. And in 1880, the railroad came to Aro. Exports increased, more people came, and the region thrived. People needed Rioja wine, especially as they struggled to replant vineyards in other countries that had been ravaged by phylloxera. But as soon as French wine got back on its feet with American rootstock grafting, Rioja lost a major export market. As colonialism began to crumble and a shift towards nationalism, more export markets were lost. And then phylloxera hit Rioja and crippled the wine industry there. And then... World War I, Depression, World War II, and Civil War just emaciated a once-thriving wine community. In the 60s and 70s, things started to get back on track. 
and a system that was once based on growers and buyers moved towards more of an estate system of grape production. Today you'll find Rioja wines on wine lists all around the world, and they represent some of the greatest values. Rioja wines, at times, can stretch the curious wine mind by begging the question, where is the locus of quality? A pervading assumption throughout the wine community is that quality revolves mostly and primarily around terroir. A few regions stretch what the concept of quality may revolve around. In Champagne, for instance, you'll find fine wines made from multi-subregional blends and multiple vintages. The lines of terroir and vintage with some champagnes are blurred, and we are asked to find quality in a slightly different place than the focused wine from a single vineyard in a single vintage. In Jerez, the distinct aromas of floor yeast and the intense sense of induced oxidation can overwhelm the nuances of terroir or force us to expand the definition of terroir. And the wines seem to ask us to find quality elsewhere in the distinct characteristics that come from unique styles of winemaking. In the Mosul, fractalized bottlings from different harvests of the same vineyard in the same year. For example, trying a Cabernet and Spelese side by side from the same producer year and vineyard. They seem to ask us to find quality partly in the various balances of sugar and acid that different harvest times can produce. Rioja wines can also stretch the possibility of where quality lies. In some Rioja bodegas, you will find the most interesting cellar conditions where a delicate balance of penicillin mold and spiders may be used to regulate cellar temperature and humidity. The cellar aromas can easily manifest in the wine, and you are left with the notion that perhaps a large portion of a wine's quality traits can come from not just where the grapes are grown, but from the microbiology of where the wine is aged. Rioja can also challenge our notions of where quality lies by suggesting that perhaps quality may partly come from the transformation of even ordinary wine over decades of subtle aging in the bottle. The targeted use of oak, the bright acidity of Tempranillo or Viura, and tannin extraction can help create a recipe that is perfect for long periods of aging. Even Rioja table wines that undergo decades of sleep in the bottle can transform into magical liquid experiences. There are many bodegas in Rioja that have their own way of doing things. And this bodega individuality can really be exciting when tasting Rioja wines from around the region and from various levels of bottle age. When you really open your mind to experience the many different Riojas, red, white, orange, rosé, Old oak, new oak, large barrels, small barrels, Daryl cellars, penicillin cellars, different blinds of Graciano and Masuelo, or 100% Tempranillo bottlings. You can walk away from the region with more questions than answers, which I think leads to the region's allure and mystique. Coming up next, an interview with one of the more mysterious bodegas in Rioja, with unique wines that exude a fierce individuality. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb 
at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Maria Jose Lopez de Heredia on the show today of Lopez de Heredia in Rioja Alta. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you. Thank you. You found a cache of letters that your great-grandfather had written to the family. And sometimes you read those and learn about the history of your own estate. I read them all the time, all the time, because I think it's very important to get to know your, your history. And we have uh, almost the history of La Rioja, and uh, and it's very important. I have a bad memory, so I have to read them all the time, non-stop, non-stop. I tie them and and concentrate on what what was going on in every time in history, because everybody talks a lot about vintages, about wine, but I believe that sometimes sociological, uh, how was the economy of our country, of our region, and uh, what was going on in certain times uh, of the year uh, gives you a lot of clues to understand about wine. We tend to talk about terroir, about the soil. We tend to talk about great varieties, about climate. But at the end, Sometimes in the personality of the wines, there are many other uh, stories that they were behind the, the wine. And plus, we've been lucky that we have, you know, we call it sort of a cultural project. And, uh, and we employ a man who is a doctor in philosophy and anthropologies that has been more or less tidying up and organizing all, all our papers. And he's read... Uh, most of the documents and he has done resumes but still there are more more others to go through because many times i think people talk about your winery as one that is stopped in time but it feels from when you talk about these letters that it's more revealed through time i wish we could be a stop in time <laughs> more but uh, it's inevitable to be in time but it is true that I take it as a compliment because because it's true that we are very determined to not to change many things, but it's like uh, with the philosophy of that if something works, why should you change it? You know, it's like if uh, you like something that you do, why why you have to change it? But we are not stopping time, and we've gone through a lot of different. Uh, excitement moments through history and we adapt and and I always say that we've been mother for 138 years and these letters are a proof of that. The, what I find very 
beautiful. When I read letters from my great-grandfather and I read them to my brothers and sisters and to many of the people who work with us, and not only of my great-grandfather, but my grandfather, uh, his brothers and sisters, and, uh, and also letters from my father, is that there is a line of belief and of philosophy of what we do that sometimes I have heard from my dad, you know, many of the stories that I read in the letters, they were stories that my dad told me, but I really didn't know. One tends to think sometimes like, you know, will that be real? And when you read the letters and when you find that everything that you were told was uh, exactly like uh, my dad told me is very beautiful. Your dad didn't allow you to drink wine when you were a little girl? No. No, no, no. Our dad was uh, old-fashioned, and he gave us the majority of age when we were 21, even when in Spain he was 18. And he didn't allow us to, to drink wine until the age of 21, although when we didn't have good appetite or we felt bad, uh, he gave us a little glass of wine like if it was a medicine. In very special occasions, or when it was Christmas, just gave us a little bit of wine to toast. So he was very selective, you know. But uh, he taught us to, to admire and to respect wine. And in general, there is, I always say that there is not a risk uh, that children drink wine because wine is acidic, is alcoholic, is bitter, and it's not like a Coke. You know, it's just it's something that you don't find very easy to drink. But nevertheless, there are some children, I have a niece, that, you know, that likes wine, you know. So uh, you have to teach how to drink, and it's obvious that you don't have to allow to drink wine to children in general. As a child, you had a view of wine as celebration with your family and as healing. Uh, totally. I have the memories, especially in Christmas, of all the, my father and his brothers and sisters, my uncles and aunts, uh, queuing after a bottle of 54, like if it was something very special. So we tended to go in the queue as well because we wanted to, you know, just, you hear the comments and, and, uh, and all the stories were very beautiful around one. So this is, it helps you to respect the wine and also sometimes our grandfather and my father used to tell us where the bottle of wine was in the cellar and we have to go and collect the bottle and they used to tell us just go very slowly don't run because if you fall you'd rather break your head than the bottle you know it's like the bottle was more precious than ourselves you know and all these things that uh, happened to you as a little kid then are uh, it gets to a stage that they become your memories. Were you allowed to play in a bodega? For sure. We play hide and seek. And uh, all generations, yes. We not only play in our bodega, but even worse, we played in the bodegas of our neighbors. We used to go to bodegas Ilvainas and to bodegas Cune to play when we were kids. And, and, and I learned how to ride the bicycle in the garden of bodegas Ilvainas. They were friends. So, yes, we played... And we had a great time. And it's not only me, it's all generations play high and sick in our bodega. Our bodega is very good for that. We didn't play that much in the vineyards. Our dad took us to the vineyards every Sunday. 
And I must admit, I was quite bored, you know, because for a kid, you go to the vineyards and they look absolutely immense. And uh, when it was, and after one hour and two hours, and it was hot, or sometimes it was cold, we were bored and we wanted to go home. And our father insisted about, oh, this is Tempranillo and Garnacho and Graciano and Mazuelo. And he made us describe the character of the of the leaves and distinguish the great varieties. And at the beginning, we pay a lot of attention. But then after a while, we thought it was it was boring and we tended to hate it more than love it. So it's not always good news. He used to take you to the vineyard something kind of like Sunday school and make you memorize things. Every Sunday because my father um, had a beautiful life, but also a hard life. And he was in charge of planting the vineyards, in charge of the vineyards, in charge of making the wine, in charge of all the commercial affairs and everything. And sometimes he didn't have enough time during the week. So uh, every Saturday and Sunday he used to go to... Viña Tondonia to the four vineyards, to Tondonia, to Bosconia, to Cubillo, to Grabo, to every single vineyard to just see how uh, everything, uh, he had to organize the works. And, and so that's because he went himself. The whole family had to go with him. What was your dad like? My dad was an extraordinary human being, was an extraordinary person. Any person who had passion for what he did, a very intelligent person, and, and he adored wine. He got very annoyed when people introduced him as a winemaker because he never studied winemaking and he was very proud of not having studied winemaking and he said always that he was a winemaker. In fact, he tried to study chemistry. But uh, his father told him not to, because at that time they thought they were going to try to make a wine with bad grapes. So it was more important to know how to grow the land. And, uh, and in, in his uh, generation, very few people study winemaking. Uh, they were like the equivalent of what we call maestro bodeguero, maître de chez, and they knew how to make wine. But he was more proud of being a vine maker, vine maker, a vignolog, he used to say. I am a vignologo rather than an enologo. So uh, he just never considered himself an enologo, and he made wine all his life. And there's a tradition of that, because your great-grandfather, Raphael, also didn't make wine, but he was the owner and partner. And in fact, my great-grandfather end up in the wine wall by accident almost because my great-grandfather, not many people know that he was born in Chile. He was uh, from a family of Spanish immigrants from the Basque country. And when he was 14 years old, he came to Spain to study in a school of Jesuits. It was a school run by Jesuits a nearby Bilbao in Orduña. And this was in 1870. And he studied in 1871, and in 1872 he escaped the school because he decided to fight in a, in a war. Spain was divided by a monarchic war. That was not only a monarchic war, it was a war of uh, traditions, of principles, and um, 
he fought in this war, but they, it lasted very few months because they lost it. So he was uh, taken prisoner. He was sent to France. And, uh, and in France, he studied for a year and a half international commerce. And when he finished his studies, he just wanted to go to either Chile, he wanted to go back to Chile, or go to England to learn English. And the situation of a family in Chile has changed, and his mother told him that he had to stay in France and worked in France for his living. So he started to work in a company in the south of France, and this is how he ended up in Rioja, because this company was dealing with wheat, barley, and wine between France and Spain, and this company broke and the owners left him alone. He was taking care of the accounts. And uh, he had to do to all the liquidation of the company. We have all the documents at home in the winery. And two of the creditors of this company were French negotiants who were dealing with wine because France was destroyed by the phylloxera. It is true that the official version of how Rioja was born is because of the phylloxera, but before the phylloxera, there had been a big uh, disease of mildew, and, uh, and, and lots of vineyards uh, from France were destroyed, so was the phylloxera in addition to the mildew that had destroyed the vineyards of France, and that's why the French were in demand of a lot of volumes of wine. And this is how Rioja was born, and this is how my great-grandfather was brought by two French negotiants from France. They thought it was a nice young man, and they offered him a job with the Minaro, and they taught him how to make wine. And then he married a woman from Aro, from Rioja. Uh, women in Aro, well, women and men in Aro, uh, we are called jarreros, jarreros and jarreras. Uh, we are not called arenses, although, although you can use the, that uh, toponymo, arense. In reality, we are called jarreros because of, there is a story of an old jar from the 12th century in our village. So he married a jarrera and he never went back to Chile in his life. He stayed, he stayed at home. But um, he had never grown a vine in his life. So, uh, first of all, the French taught him how to make wine. And then, uh, soon, he told them that he wanted to make a great, high-quality wine. So, the French told him, but if you want to make a high-quality wine, you really have to buy land. You have to control the grapes. And he told them, but I have no idea how to buy the land, so you have to give me advice. So, he always got advice from the best people and from the best French chateaus. He had a lot of contact with Chateau d'Isam, with Chateau Briand, with Margot. They exchanged coopers. He brought Merlot, Cabernet, plants. He brought technology from Bordeaux. He worked a company called Pepine Fils. And he maintained contact with France all his life. But he not only took advice from the best investigators from France, 
but also from the best investigators in Spain at the moment. Uh, Nicolás García de los Salmones was one of the most important investigators for fighting against the phylloxera. He was based in Navarra. He was originally from Pamplona and also uh, the first director of the Enological Station in Aro, Victor Cruz Manso de Tuñiga. He was an agronomous engineer, but also he was a grower. So at that time, they gave him a lot of advice how to replant the vineyards after the phylloxera. Because now these days, everybody talks in Rioja about terroir, and uh, there is like a trend uh, of um, studying uh, again the soil. But in Rioja, we had studied the terroir for many years, among other things, because we suffer phylloxera. And uh, because of the phylloxera in France, uh, Rioja became very rich. And in this moment, people like my great-grandfather could uh, make money and reinvest in buying vineyards, but also in building the winery. Although our winery, half of the original project of my great-grandfather is unfinished. But also lots of people got ruined in La Rioja years later, not many years later, because of the phylloxera. The phylloxera arrived to Rioja for the first time in 1899. It was seen in a village like uh, 10 kilometers away from Aro, Sajazarra. And uh, the records in all these letters that I read from my great-grandfather, he said when they found phylloxera for the first time in 1901 in Viña Tondonia, and my great-grandfather had to replant everything, and he was lucky. But uh, many people were not lucky, and they just lost all their land, and they have to leave La Rioja. And because of the replantation of the phylloxera, they had to study the terroir. They have to study the soil. So we know very well our soils in, uh, in Rioja. And, uh, and it took many years to get to know which grape varieties were the best, which type of roots, American roots, were the best for each grape variety. So it's not that they suffer only phylloxera, in uh, 1901 is that um, years later, in 1920s or in 1930s, the phylloxera re-attacked because they haven't chosen the, the best graft for the grape variety or for the type of soil. And I must admit that the story of my family is very beautiful, but uh, not only my great-grandfather, but my grandfather and, you know, through through history, they have suffered lots of moments of uh, real desperation and not making money and thinking about selling the business. And uh, so there has been difficult moments as well. The soil is limestone and clay. Yes, basically. Yes. Yes, it's from the Tertiaria era. And Rioja has really great vocation for making uh, good wines. Now in the 21st century, you can grow vines almost in every piece of land in the earth. If uh, there is uh, no water, you water. If there is not enough light, uh, there are knowledge enough to sort of like 
train the, the vines on a way that you get the most profit of number of hours of insulation. Uh, but you cannot make great wines if you don't have a specific climate and a soil. And of course, all over Rioja, Rioja at the moment has 60,000 hectares and there are different types of soil. There are more fertile soils and, uh, and richer soils and, uh, and poor soils that are the really good ones for, for the vines. But most of our soils were covered with water in the, uh, because of the Ebro River. Which is right there. And uh, goes right which next is to the bodega. very nearby mm. and, uh, and, and goes through all, uh, all the Rioja. And they have graphs, they have stones, which uh, the more stony areas uh, have whiter type of soil, which is, is better for white, for white grapes. But the stony areas also help uh, to drain very well. And considering that in general, Spain is a very dry country, vines have to survive when they are thirsty, you know, like the drought. So the soils are very good for surviving in very dry years and uh, for um, making the vine be at a limit on which can give uh, really beauty. But it's not only the soil, it's the soil plus the grape variety. Because in particularly Rioja Alta, because of the latitude and because of the height that we, where, we, where we based our vineyards, uh, normally our wines had the character, we call them vinos finos, fine wines, had the character of very low alcohol content and very high acidity levels. And historically, in the 17th century, most of the People were complaining that the wines of Rioja did not have capability of traveling. They couldn't travel because they become vinegar, because the alcohol content was very low. And uh, so we needed ha to have a great variety like Grenache that help us to increase the alcohol content. And sometimes we use the, well, we always use the, the Graciano and Mazuelo grave to balance the color and the acidity, but the acidity, the freshness, uh, the nerve in the wines is one of the character of, of the wines of uh, Rioja, especially the ones of Rioja Alta. And your great-grandfather named the wines that he made after the vineyards that he had purchased. Yes, but there is a story there because my great-grandfather, first of all, started selling bulk, like almost every winery, to France. And soon uh, they started to bottle, uh, to sell in bottle. And the first labels of my great-grandfather were having his name. The first labels were beautiful. Uh, Rafael Lopez de Heredia, they had his signature. And uh, one of the oldest labels that we have at home is from 1883, and is a balloon uh, with the colors of the Spanish flag, and it says Vino de España. And from the balloon, they hung five barrels and the five continents, because that was his dream. He wanted to sell his wines to the five continents. But before that, the label of Viña Tondonia was born, he also used French names. And it was not only him. In every historical winery in Rioja, they used to get the inspiration of wines from France. So Graf's, Midoc, 
Burgundy, and in the labels, he used to write Rafael Lopez de Heredia, uh, Sauternes style, Burgundy style, Graf's style. And uh, you can find these sort of, I don't know, inspirations, in imitations, copy, because there was a way, it was somehow the way to transmit the consumers from abroad and especially the French consumers, that this wine was the same style that they were used to. I met dog, so turns. So this gives us an idea of how extremely destroyed was France. And in fact, Lots of people from Medoc and from Bordeaux gave an incredible advice to Rioja people for making that style of wine. So, um, as I said before, my great-grandfather got the advice from lots of French chateaus to buy the type of land. And if they want to make a wine with more body, they bought a type of soil that had more clay so that the the, the roots could suffer a little bit more and show more fruit and less finesse than, uh, for example, other wines. And he bought all of these under this advice. And, for example, our Curumbinia Cravonia was not named by my great-grandfather, was named by a brother of my grandfather because he was called uh, Rioja, Graf's style until 1954. And my, my great-grandfather had died during the Spanish, Spanish Civil War. My, my great-grandmother died in 1937 and my, uh, my great-grandfather 1938. Uh, the Spanish Civil War went uh, from 1936 to 39 and they died during the war. And uh, uh, my grandfather, I mean, all, 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 all their sons and uh, uh, maintained the business. And they used French names until 1954. And it was in 1954 when there was a law in the Spanish government that forbid the use of French names because at that time already France was totally recovered from, from their problems. And then these sort of imitations were started to be considered like a, more a competition than a, than a good thing. And that's why they forbid to use the same way we cannot call champagne to our Cava because it's only from Champagne. Uh, we cannot call Grafs so or we cannot call Burgundy or we cannot call Sauternes to our wines. And the only original name was Tondonia. Tondonia had been born around 1924. This is some of the things that now I look at the records because sometimes we don't know because not even my father knew and only the labels that were printed and some of the records and the registrations of the brands tell us when the wine was really born. Because we know that my great-grandfather started to buy the land of Piña Tondonia since the very beginning, in 1877, 1880, 1890, continue buying through the years little by little because he have to save the money and also he have to get the advice and also he have to be in contact with the people who had to sell him the land. But at the beginning, he used the grapes from Viña Tondonia, not for, not under the brand Viña Tondonia, but under the brand of this sort of Medoc style. 
And we know that when we lost Cuba, in 1898, my great-grandfather donated 1,000 cases to the army that lost uh, because it was, uh, you know, one of the last uh, Cuban Filipinas, the last colonies. And that wine was called Medoc style already, but it was made with the same grapes that we made now, the Viña Tondonia. And the vineyard itself was called Tondon because it comes from Latin round. And uh, we have records that this vineyard was called Tondonie in the 12th century. But we don't know if our great-grandfather knew about that. In general, what we know is that in the 18th century, it was registered as Tondon from Round. It's a peninsula totally bordered by the Ebro River. It's a very close peninsula. And it's a round area. That's why it was called Tondon. So my great-grandfather, from the name Tondon, Added the ia means grapes coming from Tondon. And the brand was born when he replanted after the phylloxera. Already he was very proud of this vineyard, of the wine that was coming out of Viña Tondonia. And that's why it's beautiful to read his records because um, he was talking about all the projects of everything he wanted to do. In Viña Tondonia, he was talking that Viña Tondonia have two fountains and how he was planting the different grapes. And only after he replanted is when he could release a wine that he called, uh, you know, El Rioja Supremo, the Supreme Rioja, and uh, who was a high quality wine and uh, could be named under a brand. And since 1924, until 1954, when it was forbidden the use of French names, they were living together, the Viña Tondonia and the other brands. And uh, when it was forbidden to use, the, to use the French names, from Graphs, they made the Grabonia. From Medoc, they make a Medocchia. And uh, we used to have a wine called Medocchia that I've never known that disappeared more than almost 50 years ago now. And then they did from Borgogna, they did from Burgundy. Uh, the literal translation in Spanish is Borgogna, so they made the Bosconia. So the current brands that we use now were born after 1954. And the names were made by my grandfather and his brother, Julio Cesar. Is Cubillo yes. named after Cuba? No. Uh, Cubillo is after the vineyard. The vineyard is called Cubillas. But in fact, Cubillo was called Vendimia Especial before that. So Cubillo was not a, an inspiration. It was like, was like an special, it was called Vendimia Especial. Um, because they couldn't find a name that came like uh, Sotern, Soternia. The vineyard itself is called Cubillas, and that's why they call it Cubillo. How do you see the differences between the other vineyards besides Gravonia? I mean, what's the difference between the Tandonia and the Basconia? Normally, is the orientation and the soil. Viña Tondonia is our bigger vineyard, and it's a mountain that has all the orientations and it drains very well. And this was the wine that was capable to be softer, more elegant, according to the description of my great-grandfather. 
So um, because we use in all our red wines the same great varieties, uh, Tempranillo, Garnacho, Graciano, and Mazuelo, the classical blend that made Rioja be known or, or different or special, uh, my great-grandfather looked for different soil in Viña Bosconia with more clay in order to make wines in more body, slightly more rustic, with the idea of full body of 100 years ago, which is not the same idea than nowadays. And this is what makes the biggest difference of uh, Viña Tondonia and, and Viña Bosconia and Viña Cubillo. Viña Cubillo and Viña Bosconia are capable to make wines with more fruit, with slightly more acidity levels. But always we describe our wines uh, sort of like measuring in comparison to Viña Tondonia. That is our, I don't know how to say it, it's not that is our star wine, but that was the favorite of my great-grandfather. And we are very faithful to that philosophy and that origins. Viña Tondonia is a, a vineyard of 100 hectares. We never grow 100% all the all the, um, uh, the surface because we leave the land rest and... Um, so you leave uh, it fallow at different uh, times. Exactly. We cultivate uh, wheat, but at the end it's a big vineyard and we could divide the vineyard in different parcels with different characters. But the philosophy of my great-grandfather was blending all the grapes from that vineyard and making a unique Viña Tondonia. And even when the Viña Tondonia white and the Grand Reservas coming from Viña Tondonia are very well known because they are, we made small volumes. Uh, in our philosophy, my great-grandfather wanted to make every year out of the Reserva wine, what is nowadays the the Reserva wines that historically used to be released as a crianza, the Tondonia wanted to be uh, an extraordinary wine. And then only very good years, he did like a millesim wine from Viña Tondonia, you know, a small volume of a wine that was capable to age longer. And he was also very happy and very proud of his Tondonia white, but never the Tondonia white was uh, bigger in volume than the Tondonia red. But he gave as much importance to the Tondonia white than to the Tondonia red, you know. The Tondonia Reserva was uh, the wine that he was going to leave for and uh, the wine on which he put all the efforts. How should I understand the difference between Grand Reserva and Reserva at Lopez? Is it just more time in the bottle or is it more time in wood or is it a selection of special? Well, because it is impossible to reply any questions without going back to history, because in fact, in the history of Rioja, the Gran Reserva did not exist. Uh, according to the current laws, all our wines in Viña Tondonia, in our wine, in our winery are Gran Reservas, all our wines. Uh, the fact that we release them as crianza or reserva is just, uh, it means nothing. You know, it's like part, like, I mean, we didn't want to release all of them as a grand reserva, but we can do that. But historically, all the ones used to be called crianza wines. I mean, it's like no matter if they were 20 years old in Rioja, all the wines were called crianza because crianza meant to the market that they've been 
in nose in a barrel, that they've gone through barrel aging, something that was very important in the history of Rioja. And, it, and historically, they were only the Crianza wines and occasionally San Reserva, which meant that they were reserved for a special occasion, for a family celebration. I'm talking when there was no enough knowledge that could prove that wines had capability of aging. So in a logical way, normally some families used to reserve in a small volume of that Crianza wines for lasting long, for special celebrations, but they reserve the wines that they thought more cap- they had more capability of aging, like they have a little bit more color, they have a little bit more acidity, a little bit more alcohol content, and they guess they could age better in the bottom. This is the history. And then after the years, there has been a classification of Crianza, Reserva, and Gran Reserva in order to guarantee a minimum time of barrel agent and bottle agent. But we still almost follow the ancient rules, you know, that's why our Gran Reserva is a 20-year-old wine, so it's a super, super Gran Reserva, there is no classification for our wines because according to the Rioja rules, a Gran Reserva needs two years in barrel and three years in bottle. And we age 10 years in barrel and 10 years in bottle, our Gran Reserva. But our Reserva, Tondonia, white and red, uh, is aged six years in barrel and we release them when it's 10, 11, 12 years old or and the white's even older. And also our Bosconia is age five years. So we release them as reservas, although we could, we could sell them as Gran Reservas. But, uh, and the Cuillo, our youngest wine, is age three years in a, in a barrel. And the current release is a 2007. So for us, all our wines are Crianza wines because basically they've been stabilized with patience in the barrel. And this is what Crianza means for us. Sometimes Rioja has been criticized because of this classification of Crianza Reserva, that we give more importance to that than to other to other things. But it's not true. In order to age wines, to criar vinos, you need to have high quality grapes. So it all starts by giving importance to the land and to the grapes. So it's not that we give more importance to the barrel aging, but it's part of our history that when there was no technology, we have to have patience, we have to have barrel aging. And Rioja has been known because we age long the wines in barrel uh, in order to give them a length of capability of bottle aging. And in Rioja, we've been very faithful to made wines with long lasting, uh, with vocation of aging. And this is part of our history. And also in general, Spanish wines are criticized or, or blame of having too much oak flavor or barrel flavor or, but um, that is when you don't have very good experience of aging because um, at home, uh, my father or my grandfather would have killed me if uh, if the fruit of a wine of a Tondonia would have been destroyed by the oak. 
you know, a wine always have to remind the fruit and the terroir, and our treatment of the barrel has always been on such a way that we have restored the barrels and and aged the barrel so that the barrel did not dominate the character of the fruit. And uh, and if it does, I have to apologize, but it's a defect. You know, it's like if sometimes we make that mistake, it's wrong, we don't like it. It's not that we look for that. And uh, and I think um, very few winemakers looks for the uh, character of the wood. No, we use the wood for aging the wines and for stabilizing the wines. Uh, in the barrel, they have a gentle, soft micro-oxygenation and stabilization. But it is true that within the rules of Rioja, historically, did not exist el vino joven, the young wine, you know, the or the wine that uh, that has not gone through barrel. This is something that has been born many years later because of the advance of the technology. Now you can stabilize the wines in a different way. You can release the wines younger and you can even release them without barrel aging. But historically we couldn't and we don't release any of our wines without barrel aging. So the grapes come to the winery and what happens? Then from the moment that we cut the grapes till they arrive to the cellar, there is the, the shorter period possible. So the grapes arrive fresh. And uh, in our house, until 1886, there was no electricity. So they used to fill the vats by hand. But uh, after that, uh, as soon as the electricity arrived, my great-grandfather bought uh, the steamer machine and, uh, and is the, the, the one we use still nowadays. So we weigh the grapes in a Roman scale and then they are the stem. And then we send them to a pump, send them to a, to the fermentation vats. Which are wood. And which are wood, which are very old and they are made of Spanish, American, Yugoslavian and French oak different staves uh they no normally each one is made of like if it's all american oak is all american oak and another bad it's like the the oak that it was available and then uh, because normally you know the staves have to i mean the oak trees have to be very old and they have to have the same size and what they are is irregular sizes with We've got most of our uh, vats are like 20,000 liters, but we have uh, some of them bigger, some of them smaller. They are not the exact size and they don't hold the exact number of kilos. You know, some some of them hold 15,000 kilos. We've got a couple that hold 18,000 kilos. We've got a very small one that holds 10,000 kilos. So uh, they are regular sizes. And then the fermentation, then we control the temperature and we control the, the density and we measure. And now we have more possibilities of measuring more components in wine with the, with the current technology. But uh, we don't tend to take decisions according to the measurements. I mean, the measurements are very important for our records. And we already know our grapes but uh, we tend to make the wine on the same way we've always made. And one of the things that uh, people get very shocked and is uh, that uh, one of the reasons why we are very well known is that the way we control the temperature of 
fermentation is natural. It's, it's, it's with drafts, it's opening doors and windows. It's a more slave uh, system because you have to control temperature day and night and you have to be all the time uh, taking decisions. But um, but it works. It works because within in, inside the vats, is taking place a natural selection of a very, very wild yeast that is capable to ferment at higher temperature because the oak is very pretty to see, but the oak tends to retain the temperature. And when it's very high, it's difficult to drop. Uh, but because we are in Rioja Alta, our wines don't have high sugar levels. And also because we use Graciano and Mazuelo, we have these grape varieties have acidity and they, they are not extremely alcoholic. So that's why the temperature doesn't, at the risk of having a very, very high temperature, is not the same that if we were making wine with this, the same way in a hotter area. And sometimes those vats have been sort of healed with animal blood, patched. With blood, what we do is the maintenance maintenance. Uh, many people get very shocked when we talk about blood, but blood is a protein that historically was used uh, very successfully for fining wines. But uh, a long time ago, that is forbidden the use of blood unless, unless it's analyzed and it comes from a slaughterhouse because, because it has to be free of the mad cow disease and other. And other. But small volumes of blood that are analyzed, we use them for doing the maintenance in the inside of the vat because it's a protein that somehow hydrates the, the wood inside. Outside, in between the staves, we use paper. The way we close the doors of the vat is with fat, fresh fat, that we blend with a little bit of sulfur so it doesn't oxidize. So, well, they are all natural products that uh, is the ancient way of maintaining vats that people who are familiar with maintaining old boats, uh, you know, it's like, is the way you maintain in general um, oak. And so then you put it into the cellar after it's fermented, the wine, and what kind of barrels are those? And then it starts the, the barrel aging, and we use 225 liters borderless barrel. Uh, we use always American oak because historically it was more available. Um, well, at the very beginning, my great-grandfather used any type of wood because the barrel was not uh, used for making wine as a wine-making decision. The barrel was used for transporting wine and uh, any type of wood that could be bent and could be modeled and could be made a barrel of uh, was used. So uh, at the beginning they used chestnut, they used cherry wood and, and oak and, and any type of wood. And um, soon in general the wine industry discovered that the oak is the type of wood that respect more, that is less invasive in terms of, of respecting the fruit. And in general, there are very few records, but at home we use more American oak than French oak, and that, that is why we still use it. And we built all our barrels ourselves, and we restore the barrels. So uh, many people get very impressed when we show them and we tell them that we age 
10 years, some of our wines, or the majority six years. But uh, we restore the barrel. So for us, it's very important uh, doing restoration of, of uh, small barrels because for us, the barrel is a, uh, becomes a container where the wines gets very gentle, soft, micro oxygenation, but again, not an excess of lignins and tannins. Uh, the American oak is quite aggressive in terms of tannins. Uh, it can give a lot of astringency and a lot of character to the wines. Or, or And that's why we restore the barrels and we make them last. And after nine, ten years, you have to remove some of the staves. So many of our barrels are restored more than once. The difference between, besides the grape varieties, the difference in the process of the winemaking between the Tondonia white and the Tondonia red, what would those differences be? Well, uh, we always say that we make the Tondonia white like if it was a red wine, but we don't do a full fermentation with the skins. We do a skin contact that can last uh, two, three days or even slightly more because uh, that way we can obtain all the preserves that will allow us to age the wine. But it would be almost impossible to do full skin contact during all the fermentation because they will become extremely dark. But apart from that, the skin contact is uh, there are no other differences in the winemaking. It is true. It's a great variety, of course, as you said. I mean, it's like they are made with Viura and Malvasia grape. But uh, then we treat and we made our white wines like, uh, like reds. They are fine with the white like reds. They are fermented like reds. They are barrel aged like reds and they are bottle aged like reds. Yes. And what about the rosé? And the rosé, exactly the same, but uh, the rosé in the blending of the grapes, we use Grenache. We use uh, the Grenache because it's more pale. We use uh, Bura because it gives freshness and also capability of aging. And also we use Tempranillo, and the Tempranillo gives uh, that candy flavor and, again, capability of aging. And we do the rosé like a white. We do a skin contact. And with whites and rosé, one has to be more careful because, you know, if you do too much skin contact, then you over, uh, you get a darker color. And then the wines will not age uh, as well from the color point of view. And uh, whites and rosés are... Color wines, you know, they go through our eyes. Uh, red as well, you know, there are different nuances in a red wine. But um, for some reason that one should, I'm sure this has been a study, but a uh, human being is, uh, is sensitive to colors in food and in beverage. And sometimes I've heard that... Uh, that there are no beverage of uh, blue color. Although now I know that someone has made like blue color wine or something like that, and you know, everything is invented. But um, the reason why people pick or choose a rosé or a white is a matter of color sensitivity as well. And if a rosé is too dark, or white is too dark, uh, there is a predisposition to having a different idea of the wine. And in fact, our rosé is quite shocking because it's a 10-year-old rosé and has 
the natural color of a 10-year-old rosé is just the evolution. We describe it as onion skin color, but it or peach, and it is orange, and it's a type of color that you know not everybody is familiar with. And uh, unless uh, you write down the word rosé in the wine, many people wouldn't know if it's a dark white wine. But uh, if you do too much skin contact, you can take the risk of having an extra orange uh, nuance in there. So that's why we have to be careful. But apart from that contact, again, the way we treat the rosé is exactly like we, do, we treat any of our reds. So you have about 15,000 barrels in the aging cellar. Is that the right yeah. number? I uh, know. Uh, it's uh, slightly less. 12,900. Mm, we've never get to 15,000 barrels. But it's a lot. Oh. When you decide that you want a bottle of wine, do you blend the liquid in the barrels together? And do you assemble them and then yeah. bottle it? You do. Yeah, but not in the barrels. We blend them in the big bat. We move. We Is move that from the vat barrels. cement? Uh, we have cement, but for not for doing the blending, for see. holding. I mean, for for a storing wine because you always really you always need to to store wine, especially when you have uh, wood containers. Uh, you have to maintain them full all year long. But now, when it comes uh, to uh, the, the the moment of the harvest, we have to make space for the grapes that use almost double the space than the wine. So you really need to have extra containers for storing wines. But the blendings from the barrel, we do them directly from, uh, I mean, we, uh, we move from the barrel to the big vats. We do the, the blendings and sometimes the fining. That we do for the, well, for the reserva wines. And for the grand reserva wines, we also do the homogenization in a vat and then they go back to the barrel and then we bottle them. We bottle the wine directly from the barrel. I see. So this is the difference. With the Reserva, we do the homogenization and the blending and they go to a bottling line. And from the Grand Reserva, we do this homogenization, but then they go back to the barrel and we find them with the egg white directly in the barrel. So uh, from the moment we find them, it, uh, till the moment we bottle, sometimes uh, it can pass uh, two, three, four months. And that's why sometimes you can find bottle variation, like uh, what people said, that um, previously there has been a homogenization. But I mean, it's like in artisan wines, you will always find a certain level of bottle variation. Sometimes people congratulate us for the uh, distinctive uh, style of Tondonia and uh, and that is always equal, but uh, uh, our wine is not always. Uh, we don't. We are not obsessed for not having variation because it's like someone who is a painter and you do ten drawings, uh, probably the same, but they will never be exactly, you know, the same. But uh, there is your style and it's a painter's style. But we're not obsessed with having like stream equal uh, wines in every bottle, no. And there's something in the cellar that eats the corks and for that reason you have to change corks. No, no, there is a, in the cellar we had moths 
that sometimes attack the corks. And so as a consequence, we leave the spiders so that the, uh, and the spider web because they eat the moth that attack the corks. But uh, normally the corks that are attacked um, by these moths are from very old bottles and we never change them because normally they tend to, to destroy the wine. It takes many years that the, the, the corks are destroyed by this, this moth. So we wax in general all the, all the corks so that we avoid having these attacks of the moth but these moths exist in every in every cellar because it's a, they are a specific moth that attack the corks but if you don't have a big storage of bottles you will never receive an attack and have you ever in the cellar encountered either flavors in the wine or barrels that indicated to you that there might be a presence of floor a presence of the kind of yeast covering on top of the liquid that you might find in the Jerez region no, Never. no, no, we don't do a biological agent. And even when our cellar is full of mold and uh, penicillium and cladosporium cellari, uh, first of all, that has been investigated. The style of cellars like ours tend to suffer less contaminations than others that are extremely clean. That doesn't mean I, uh, I'm uh, against to, towards the the very, very aseptic and clean wineries. But, um, of course, the velo, the floor, is a risk that exists in every, in every winery when you are aging wine. If you don't top up properly the barrel, so there is evaporation, there is always a development, but it's not the same velo that... Uh, it's, not, it's, it's the same velo that we have to control and it's uh, more or less... The, it's a velo that would never have a... A biological agent, and of course, in our cellar there are, there is the risk that uh, you can have in every cellar, but not something exceptional. And how old are some of the barrels? I mean, after they've been rehabilitated. Uh, when you come to our winery, you see that the barrels are very dark, and they look like hundred years old because the level of humidity is very high. Most of our winery, not all, is built underground and has a natural humidity of 100% relative humidity. And because of that, the barrels get very dark. But we can have barrels that are 30 years old because they've been renewed and restored twice and three times. But you don't find a 30-year-old barrel from the year number one without restoration. So we have to restore them all the time. So all in all... They are not older than that, but, but they've got an age. That's, uh, that's true. When you open your own wines, when you enjoy your own wines, how do you treat them? Do you serve them a little cold? Do you decant them? What is it that you do to enjoy them? Well, it depends whose family member you ask, because my sister likes the wines slightly cooler than me. Uh, I think the temperature of a wine it depends on your or your body temperature. It's not the same being in... Uh, in New York or in Sevilla is not the same being in winter or in summer. So every moment requires a different, uh, uh, you know, different behavior somehow. Uh, I like, I like the, the wines uh, warmer than my sister uh, in general to enjoy them. But um, 
But uh, it's, uh, well, the ideal is, is uh, what historically was said, room temperature, as long as the room is not too cold or is not heated like uh, with, with an, a very extreme central heating. And we never decant. Uh, I, in, at home, we never decant our wines. Uh, lots of people, when see that our wines are are of a certain age, they question if they should uh, open them in advance. But we believe that uh, uh, the person who opens a bottle have to have the privilege of uh, smelling first and deciding if the wine should uh, breathe a little bit longer or not in the glass. And we believe that in five, ten minutes in, the, in a good glass, is uh, gives enough breathing to all our wines that uh, they need. But also I have find many people who disagree and who prefer to open them, especially the Grand Reserva, so the 20-year-old wines, they prefer to open them uh, half an hour in advance, and that is not going to destroy them. But they will miss all this evolution. Huh? You know, wine tastes totally different depending on which type of glass, Basically, I always say that everything I know about wine is because I'm a drinker, because I enjoy drinking. And we all enjoy drinking a good glass of wine, no matter if it's mine or any or, or, or a good wine. And um, whenever one person loves drinking, you end up being your own teacher, you know? Each person has... A different experience, a moment, a temperature, a glass that they like. There shouldn't be, uh, there are no rules, you know, as long as you can uh, uh, enjoy the wine. What I don't like is to chill our wines a lot because sometimes they take the soul out of them when they freeze them. But uh, if you are in a very, very hot uh, weather you you need to to give them a low temperature but it's better to chill them with the ice uh, for half an hour rather than freezing them in a in a fridge because that is what it takes off um, uh, the the gentleness and the character that they have and our whites should not be drunk as cold as many other whites, because they've got complex aromas, uh, almost like red wine, and they should be drunk at a higher temperature so that you notice the, the age and the different nuances. But uh, the fact that I reply to your questions and have my opinions, that doesn't mean that this is the rule. I'm sure everyone can have uh, their own experience depending on their taste and uh, and in terms of enjoying wine, everyone should be, how you say, autodidacta, self... Uh, self-taught. Self-taught, yes. When did you decide you wanted to run the winery? When was that a life choice for you? Well, since I was a kid, what I knew is that I wanted to work with my father. I mean, more, I've always said that uh, I really, it's not a decision like I want to sort of make wine or, or grow vines or is that, um, and I, I would say that my brothers and sisters, I mean, it's like everything we know, we knew through our dad. And, uh, and I just wanted to work with him. And in fact, I didn't want to run a company. But, you know, you have a family business. You have to, you have to, 
to run it, but I used to to discuss with my father that we needed a manager because uh, uh, a business should be managed by somebody who knows about economy and uh, and about law and and what we know is about making wine, you know. But uh, you never abandon your own your own business. So whether you do it better or worse. You just uh, run it, you know, you just uh, manage it and you take your decisions because it's a, I think that in many family-owned business like is us, uh, you don't have a choice, you don't have much choice and you make out of your work, your love and your passion. But it's not a matter of like uh, a decision. It is a decision that you are taking Every day, because it's not definitive. One can always change their life. It is true that we have a responsibility. And uh, and if I wanted to decide to give up, many people would tell me, please don't do it. But um, but one is taking that decision every, every day. Huh? Rafael Lopez de Heredia Landetta was separated from his family by Spanish Civil War, he wrote to them and he found a connection with his great-granddaughter through those letters. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Maria Jose Lopez de Heredia of Lopez de Heredia, Tandonia, in Rioja. You know, whenever we have to talk is when you don't find anything to say. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. I always ask everybody that if I was not making wine, I would like to have a radio program.